All right, we'll be Luke 16, beginning in verse 19 and reading through the rest of the chapter. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. And Westside, we are glad that you're here today. Um, we are diving in and continuing in our series, Memento More. And just to catch you up, if, if it's your first time here, I'm just full cards on the table. This is going to be super weird for you, okay? Because you're like, this is, uh, it seems there's skulls. Is this about death? What is all of this about? And we have started this series um, in the season of what's commonly known as Lent to remind us and prepare us for Easter. At Easter, we celebrate life, we celebrate resurrection, we celebrate that Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell. But oftentimes that doesn't hit us like it should because death really isn't a problem for us. That it's very much so out there or it happens to other people rather than ourselves. And the phrase memento mori, just for a little bit of review, simply means remember your death. And, and the goal of the series is we said this, that by remembering our death, that we would renew our life. That the very fact that death is a problem presses in and makes us press in to the good news of Jesus. And, and last week, we, we were asking a question each week, which is basically, um, you know, a systematic question. We started with, where did death come from? Last week, we asked the question, what happens to me after I die? And we walked through this passage. We even showed this graphic talking about, there's you, um, one out of every one human beings die. 
Welcome to Westside, glad you're here. Um, your body is buried and then your soul goes back to God. We distinguish between the soul and the body. And then we said there is paradise for the believer and then there is Hades um, for the unbeliever. And I said last week that, that it was going to be a two-part because we really just did a flyover over the parable. But this week I'm, I'm going to pull an audible, okay? I'm going to change the plans because as I was preparing the message, I realized that I was, at, I was answering a different question. So, so we asked, what happens to me after I die? And we answered that in depth last week. So please, you can go to our website, catch that message. But really what, what this week is, this week and next week, um, is, is asking a different question, and it's this. Where do I go when I die? So, so we answered what happens. We talked about the body expiring and your soul that was created by God goes back to God. But, but now we're looking at this parable, and, and there tends to be a destination, two of them in the parable. And, and maybe just to set up where we're going today, I, I had sort of an insight as I was preparing for this message and, and changed the question. Um, I shared with you that a number of years back, we had the sort of once-in-a-lifetime trip and took the family to Disney World. We had saved up as a family for a couple of years and had an awesome person just plan this for us, and it was incredible, and we were super excited. We went in January, so we told the kids that it was their Christmas for the next five years, um, you know, and so, and, and the anticipation before we went was a ton of fun. We were YouTubing rides, we were getting on the internet and looking up reviews, we were studying it, and by the time that we got there to the park, we were like, oh, this is just like the video that we saw, and we need to go here, and oh, check this out, and we knew so much about that place because we had prepared for where we were going. And as I was studying and preparing this week, um, I just had a little bit of conviction wash over me. And I realized and asked the question, do I know more about Disney than I do my eternal destiny? I mean, how, how many of us have our retirement or our vacation more planned and prepared and we know the descriptions and we know all of that more than what the Bible says that where we might spend eternity? And, and today that's what we're going to do. And, and I need to tell you up front just what I told you last week. Um, my job and my task every Sunday is to tell you the truth, what the scriptures say. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, um, I, I just wasn't looking forward to today. This wasn't like one of those things where I bumped into people at Walmart and they were like, how's the week going? I was like, great, I want to teach you about hell Sunday. And so really looking forward to that. But I do believe that there is good news that there is always good news. But I need to tell you this up front. I'm going to tell you the truth today. That's my job. Your job is to make a decision. That's your job. And, and, and as we look at this passage today, um, I think there's sort of two words that can maybe guide us in this. So this week we're going to be learning about Hades, which is what's in the passage and then next week, we're going to be learning about paradise, heaven, this, that, or the other. But before I get into the descriptions, I need to do a disclaimer. 
This is a parable told by Jesus. So, so the words that you heard like anguish, torment, flame, have mercy on me, all of that, that comes from the lips of Jesus. And the reason why it's so important to know that is because I think that we have a very distorted view of Jesus. It's almost like everybody loves Jesus and we forget that Jesus was murdered for the things that he said. Like a lot of people didn't like what Jesus had to say. But oftentimes for us, Jesus is like this feathered hair, lost member of the Beach Boys, white guy with blue eyes like peace love, has hemp sandals and this kind of stuff, okay? And, and that's a distorted view of Jesus in the scriptures. And so there's a few things that I want you to know about Jesus and the topic that we're getting ready to discuss. The first thing is this, is that Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Jesus did. That, that actually, if I were to preach the same preaching calendar that Jesus preached, once a month I would talk about money, and once a month, I would talk about hell. That's how often Jesus spoke on the subject. Secondly, Jesus taught on and described more about hell than he did heaven. In the parables and in the descriptions, Jesus was far more graphic about hell than he ever was even about heaven. And then the third thing is this. Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the reality of hell. You need to know these three things before we dive into that. That this is not Pastor Jason. That this is not, oh, this is what just this church must believe. We love the scriptures here at Westside. And that sign when you walk in is not just a slogan. It is our way of life. That we really believe that it's all about Jesus. But listen, it's all about Jesus even when Jesus goes places that we don't want to go. We have to go there. And so when we look at this idea and understand this, I love what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said. It is a very remarkable fact that no inspired preacher of whom we have any record ever uttered such terrible words concerning the destiny of the lost as our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we believe at Westside. We believe that Jesus is king of the cosmos. And here's what you don't do with a king. You don't negotiate with kings. You either rebel or you bow the knee. That's what you do to a king. So what I want to do is I want to look at the descriptions of what the scriptures talk about in this passage. And then we'll dive into the passage and then answer a few predominant questions that I know that you'll have. The first thing is this, that the word Hades in the Old Testament is Sheol, okay? So there in Luke 16, have your Bible, verse 23, there's a poor man and there's a rich man. It says at the end of verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. And then verse 23, 
and in Hades. There's the word. So we're lifting the word out of the passage because it's an obscure word. We don't know what that word means. And the way that we teach you at Westside is to let scripture interpret scripture. So where else is this word Hades? Well, in the Old Testament, Hades was synonymous with this word Sheol, which really represented the place of the dead. David would say in Psalm chapter 6, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? So what's important to know is that in, in the Old Testament understanding of death, listen, we said this last week, that, that we, we say we love the Bible, but, but the Bible sometimes surprises us. And when it comes to the issue of what happens directly after we die and those descriptions, we only get a few peeks into eternity as the scriptures would tell us. And so what we can gather is from an Old Testament understanding that when someone died, that Hades represented death in and of itself. And that there were two destinations, Abraham's side. Abraham's a big deal in the Bible. The reason why it's called Abraham's side is because if you did a poll in the Bible and asked Bible characters, well, who would be with God when they died? Everybody would say Abraham, right? We learned about him in junior church. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. This is great, right? So let's just pray, right? So Abraham's a big deal. Jesus said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a big deal. And, and there was a place of eternal punishment, and there was a place of eternal paradise. That's where we find Hades in the Old Testament. The second thing is this, understanding the difference between Hades and hell. In the New Testament, we see that what Hades is, is, is sort of a temporary waiting place. Okay, so, so please follow me, guys. Okay, this isn't like easy stuff. We're not just punting today. We are swinging for the fences, all right? And so um, whenever Jesus dies on the cross, he turns to the thief and says... Today you will be with me in paradise. In John 14, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. Now, what we often get mixed up is that we think that when we die, we go to heaven, that is like the streets of gold and what's described in the book of Revelation. That's not immediately where we go if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus. There is a temporary place because everything in creation is waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? That when Jesus comes, the great resurrection happens and he makes every wrong right and the resurrection of the dead takes place and there's no more cancer and there's no more sickness and there's no more pharmacies and there's no more funerals. Are you guys here? This is good news, okay? There's none of, that's where all of creation is going to. But until that moment, the Bible does give us some insight into those places. Jesus would say in one gospel in Matthew, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, 
Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus is distinguishing something there. He's saying there's an eternal place and then there is a place that we go to immediately after we die. We have a graphic that I think will help sort of continue our thought in this. We have the first graphic and then this graphic I think will really help us in our understanding. Your body dies, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, that from the dust you came and from the dust you will return. Your spirit goes to one of two places paradise where Lazarus is in this passage, Jesus, and we see the thief on the cross. In the parable, we see a great gulf or a chasm, a separation. And then where the rich man is, is what is called Hades. Now, this is a temporary place because everything is going to the resurrection and the judgment where every wrong is made right. Then after that, as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, then there is the eternal paradise, the streets of gold, all of that. And then there is what is known as hell. There's something that I really think that's important for us to understand, and it is this third point, is that hell was created for Satan and demons. Well, I'll just read the verse to you. Matthew chapter 25. Then he will say to those, this is Jesus, on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We looked at this the very first week, that the reason why death exists is because of the disobedience to God's good word. And that we know somewhere, there's a great mystery that before the creation of Adam and Eve, there was some sort of mystical, eternal rebellion. And what we see is that Lucifer, who's one of the only angels that's ever named in the scriptures, had a desire, and it was this. He saw Jesus sitting on the throne in heaven and said this, I want to sit there. I want all of heaven to sing my praises. And that he swept a third of the angels and that this was the place that God had prepared for them. And we said this, that that's the original sin. Augustine, one of the early church fathers said this, that pride is the mother of all the sins for she is pregnant with all the rest. Have you ever had a moment where you said, I want to sit on the throne of my life? That everybody else should rotate in orbit around me, this is the original sin. But we have to understand that this place was not created for God's good creation. Now, in just a moment, we're going to get to the issue of justice and, and, why, and all of that. But you have to understand, I'm trying to show you God's heart, that, that God is not Sid from Toy Story, okay? He's not the kid in the backyard magnifying glass, burning up all the toys and everything like that. That's not who God is. That there was a rebellion to his good word, and because of the rebellion of his word, there were consequences to that. The next thing is this, is that hell has many descriptions. A place of eternal torment, Luke 16, 23 an unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 43, where the worm does not die, 
Mark 9, 48. Where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. Matthew 13. From which there is no return. Luke 16. In a place of outer darkness. Matthew 25. You know what my great fear is today? That this is just information for you. It's just a Bible study. And the reality is, is that this is from the lips of Jesus. What do we do with this? Can I be honest with you? In my theology, I struggle with this. I struggle with this. I don't want this to be true. In all of my areas of theology, this is one that I just constantly come back to and am uneasy about. Not in a sense of rejecting God's word, but really wrestling with something like this. Now, there's a lot of people that say, oh, Jason, this is 2022, man. We have seminaries now, and we have archaeology, and all of that. Man, there is all these. There's Harvard. We got Harvard, man. J- Jason, we have Elon Musk, bro, Okay. Right? Like, do you know how advanced we are now? And you're going to tell me, you're going to tell me that you're going to read this literally. You're really going to read this literally because, Jason, there's contradictions on your screen. How is it a place of fire and darkness at the same time? Huh? Gotcha, Pastor. Not coming back next week. Thanks, buddy. Right? To which I would respond with this. If you were to ask me, do you believe... Literally this, I would tell you this, um, no, because I think it's much worse than that. It's the same way that Jesus describes heaven. He's trying to describe something that's infinite for our finite minds. So he's using earthly illustrations to show us a heavenly or an eternal reality. But the final point that I want you to understand is this, is that Jesus has the keys. That Jesus has the keys. In Revelation chapter 1, John gets a glimpse to see the resurrected Jesus, and it's this, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and death. That is good news. That is showing that Jesus has triumphed over that. So now we have looked, we have pulled one word that was foreign in the passage, and we have surveyed it through the rest of the scriptures. We could do much more. There is not enough time. But I want us to understand three real truths about this. And the first one is this, that hell is real. It is real. That that we cannot pick and choose into where we engage with Jesus. Everybody loves do not judge Jesus. That's like the best. Your non-safe friends love that verse. Because the moment you're like, hey, you know, I just want to talk to you about something going on in your life. They're like, don't you go to church? Remember what Jesus said, do not judge, right? Everybody loves that. But we have to take the totality of it. 
it's real. The second thing is this, that it's eternal. There's now new teaching in the sense that there is what's known as annihilationism and that in the end it's just annihilated and it doesn't exist. But from what I can see in the parable, there's an eternality about that. But listen, here's what I've been really wanting to get to, and this is what matters the most. I studied and read in the systematic theologies and did all of that and was so angry at my desk about theologians who are describing and they're fighting about is it real and they're fighting about is it eternal and nobody ever gave the good news. And the third thing is this, hell is avoidable. It's avoidable. That's the whole point of learning about it. It's the whole concept that Jesus is saying in the parable. Do you see the very last part? Look in verse 31. Actually, jump up to verse 29. But Abraham said, so so the rich man says, please send someone to my five brothers. Verse 28. I have five brothers and I want to warn them. I don't want them to come to this place. And then look at verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. Do you know what the rich man is saying? He's saying, please perform a miracle and go to my brothers and tell them of this place so they never have to come here. And Abraham says, they have the scriptures. They have the scriptures. And the rich man says, no, 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 the scriptures aren't enough. If a zombie raises from the dead and goes to them and says, don't come to this place, then they'll really, really, really believe that message because that's a miracle. And then look at what Abraham says, really the words of Jesus, verse 31. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you know what the reality of what is being said here is this? As 1 Timothy says, the scriptures are everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness. That there's nothing else that God can do to convince you of the good news and the gospel message. But we think, oh man, if I saw someone rise from the dead, then I would really believe. Wrong answer. Do you know that people doubted when Jesus rose from the dead? In Matthew 28, Jesus is literally in the moment of going, oh, like going to heaven. He's like, he's doing the David Blaine, like levitating, and he's going into heaven. It's like the moment, like the clouds are open, there's angels, it's Sistine Chapel. And then it says this in Matthew 28, And still some doubted. I'm like, really? What else do you need? But that shows us something. That shows us the reality of the hardness of the human heart. And many of you in this room today are almost arguing with God in a way of, God, if you would just blank, then I would blank. And that is a negotiation. And the reality of what is said in this parable is that the scriptures are enough that right now through the proclamation of his word that you are responsible for the truth in which you are hearing.
But I know what a burning question is in your heart and in your mind. And honestly, if you don't have this question, I would wrestle if you're even applying what is being said to you. It's a question that a lot of ink has been spilled and many theologians consider a watershed question because many people veer off the path here. And the question is this. How could a loving God send people to an eternal punishment? If you're telling me that God is good and all of this is bad, how do those two things coincide with one another? Well, the first thing that I would tell you is this. That is not God's ultimate desire. What I said, God's ultimate desire is not to punish people for all of eternity. Um, 2 Peter actually tells us what God's ultimate desire is. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Can I say something that I really feel is prompted in my spirit? Many of you in this room are mistaking God's patience for passivity. And I need to tell you right now that God is not passive with you. But the grace of God has kept you from the full weight of the consequences of the decisions in your life. And that grace is a discipline so that we would repent and bow the knee and return home. God is patient. He is not passive. And then it says this, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's desire. God's desire is that all of his kids would return home. Do you know what I had the picture of what a church is? When I... Anytime I leave Walmart and, and in between the two doors, if, if you look to your left or to your right, whenever you go in, you see the big poster board with all the missing people on it. And when I walked by, I thought, that's what the church is. The church is, hey, hey so the, they're lost and we're trying to get them home. We're trying to get them home. It's not, you've done this wrong, you're banished, you've fallen, I can't believe you did that. Well, if you didn't live with them, and you, that's not what it is. What it is is God shouting as a loving father, just like the prodigal son, how the father was on the porch day and night looking to see where his son was. And the moment he caught a glimpse of his son, he ran to him. That's what God's ultimate desire is today. The second thing is this. We tend to pull out one of God's characteristics and attributes that we really, really like and hold them higher than the others. But we can't do that. The same is true for your personality, that you don't want to be judged by one aspect of who you are, but rather for someone to know the totality of you. And did you know the most mentioned attribute of God in the Bible is not love? It is his holiness. It is his separateness. And it is just as it is with his mercy, so it is with his wrath. And his justice. 
But here's where I need to lean on another theologian. Listen to this explanation. All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. Not just to despite it, but of course, uh, it's because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even they themselves, you get angry about that. And God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race whom he loves with his whole being. You see, God's wrath flows from his love and delight in his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying the very peace and integrity that they desire. Do you understand it now? That, that God's wrath flows from his love. The opposite of love is not hate. That's just the different side of the same coin. That's why. Do you know the person in this world who can by far make me the most angry? My wife. Do you know why? Because I don't love anybody in this world like I love that woman. Do you know what the opposite of love is? Apathy. That's dangerous. I don't want an apathetic God. I don't want a God who doesn't care. There's a theologian by the name of Rebecca McCullough. And she's written a wonderful book entitled Confronting Christianity. Where she addresses this very question. And I want you to listen because I believe this quote summarizes everything that I'm saying in closing. And I want you to listen to this. We tend to think of heaven and hell primarily as places to be sent some imagine our destination depends on our deeds. If we are, on balance, good people, we can expect heaven. While bad people like Hitler and Stalin, they languish and deserve hell. Other people think Christianity sorts people into heaven or hell on the apparent arbitrary basis of their ascent or attaining to a certain knowledge. You see, those lucky enough to have been told about Jesus and credulous enough to believe he died in their place, they're sent to heaven. And those who have not heard and have other religious preferences are simply too smart to believe this crazy story of a resurrected man because they have the real knowledge and they're dispatched to a place called hell. But the Bible tells a different story. You see, heaven in biblical terms is not just primarily a place. It is shorthand for the full blessing of a relationship with God. It is the prodigal son come home. It's the bride being embraced by her husband with tears of joy. It's the new heavens and the new earth where God's people will be upgraded to resurrected bodies and will have and enjoy eternity with him at a level of intimacy in which the best human example is a marriage that gives us the only glimpse. You see, heaven is home, an embodied evidence of a deep relationship with God and his people recreated on earth. And hell is the opposite. It's the door shut in the face of the wayward son. It's the divorce certificate delivered at the moment of remorse. The criminal receiving his just deserves. If Jesus is the bread of life, 
then loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then loss of Jesus means wandering alone and loss. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying the price of salvation for ourselves. We said that death in its ultimate form means separation. Separation of our soul from our body, of ourselves from our loved ones. And ultimately, for those who reject this news, separation from the God who created them. Now please listen to me. But do you know why they reject or why some of you reject. It's because your desire is a life separated from God. You don't want that input. You don't want to bow the knee. You don't want to use money that way. You want your life to be your life. And listen to me, hell is God honoring what humanity wants, which is a life separate from him. But I need to tell you this, what makes heaven so beautiful is the presence of Jesus, and we're going to get into that. It's all about Jesus. But what makes hell so awful is the absence of Jesus. And do you know what? That's true for this life too. That's true for now. What makes this life joyful and bearable and to get tapped into is the very presence of Jesus. But what makes this life so difficult is the absence of Jesus. And so in application, I'm speaking to two people very clearly here. The first one is this. For those of you who have repented of your sins, please listen to me. Not those of you who are good people. Heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for people who love Jesus. That's the goal. And for those of you who have repented of your sins, bowed your knee, and confessed Jesus as the Lord of your life, listen, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. And that's good news. But what are you doing to ensure that hell is less populated? This man in this parable, the thrust of the parable, says, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers so they don't have to come here. What are we doing now as bearers of this news? The second application is this. To those of you who are non-believers, I need to tell you the truth. And it's this. That this life is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. And it might be good now. And it might be everything you've ever wanted. That's what the rich man had. But despite how you feel right now in your head and your heart, I speak upon the authority of Scripture and not upon me or my opinion. I am asking you, what is keeping you from repenting and bowing the knee and trusting the goodness of Jesus? Because do you know what the good news is? It might be cheesy, but long before Tim Tebow ever made it famous, 
John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say this, that God so loved the world that there is a God that created you on purpose and with a purpose, and he created you out of love. And listen, I'm so sorry what has happened to you. And the trauma and the heartache and life has been difficult, but I need to tell you something. Everything is broken, and this is not the way that it was supposed to be. But this God who loves you so much, he gave his only son, and that is the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, very God from God, very light from light. He is the God that spoke the Milky Way into existence. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who sits on the throne, the one who lived the perfect life in your place, died in your death, and is now seated on the throne because the grave is empty. This is Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus right now does not stand in condemnation over you. Jesus stands right now as an open invitation to your life. And he gave his son that whomever would believe in him should not perish, but have the eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the choice is yours now. Do you acknowledge that I've lived in rebellion towards my God? And now I see my God as a father who has the door to home open. And as Spurgeon said, the doorway to heaven is low, dear friends. Nobody walks in tall, for we all must stoop to get in. And here's what I'm going to tell you, that Jesus went through hell and absorbed the wrath of God so you wouldn't have to. That is the good news. So Westside, everybody standing right where you're at with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would be remiss for us not to have a moment like we had last week. You need to know that this message is doing something, that there is power in this message. And last week, five people crossed from death to life. And do you know what I believe? I believe there's people in this room today who did not raise their hand last week, but wanted to, and this is your moment now. You need to know that God has made no other provisions, no other miracles, but there is a moment now at the end of March in 2022 where God has met you right where you're at. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray. This prayer is not magic. It doesn't save you. It is not an incantation. Jesus saves you. But you don't have the words. You don't know what to say. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, for some of you, for the first time, you would admit and say, I am living in rebellion against that God. And if I were in that parable, I am not the poor man. I am not Lazarus. But I am the rich man. And God is speaking to you today. I want you to just say this to yourself. God, have mercy on me a sinner God save me Jesus you love me Jesus you're alive make it real to me I confess I'm a sinner 
but you are now my Savior. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I don't want you to be alone in this moment. If you have said that for the first time and something has clicked to you in a very real way right now, I want you to just raise your hand right where you're at so I can see you, so I can pray for you. I want you to raise your hand right where you're at. Yes, I see you. Yes, man, I see you. Yes, I see you. Yes, I see you. For all of heaven rejoices over one who returns home. God, thank you. I see you. Yes, Heavenly Father, we come before you right now acknowledging that the good news still works, that the gospel saves, and that your spirit is present among us right now, and that your spirit has done a work in people's hearts and minds. God, there's people who have raised their hand who've said Jesus is Lord for the first time today. Oh God, may we never get tired of that. That's the greatest miracle. So what the Red Sea parted? So what fire came from heaven? A sinner's been saved today. Praise God. And for those of us who carry the message, what are we doing, God? Are we going to go eat Mexican? We haven't even talked to our grandma? talk to our brother God forgive us for our apathy make this real to us for it is not out of guilt it is out of passion it is out of love Holy Spirit have your way with us we pray this all in the risen name of Jesus Christ Amen